0: He needs to keep his promises. You don't know what's true anymore. It hurts me to see people burning the
1: flag. Race relations. Me I can't have a gun. I just saw, like, the politics. Unbelievable.
0: It's what you've been waiting for all day. America now. Buck Sexton with America now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind. Strong voice. Buck Sexton.
2: Victory lap today for the Trump administration after last night's speech. Bipartisan acclaim for Donald Trump's first uh, address to a joint session of Congress, sort of like the State of the Union, quite similar to it, although not technically a State of the Union, as you know. Buck Sexton here with you, by the way. And it was uh, it was very well done. Now, let me say, I know a lot of you have probably heard throughout the day, read throughout the day... Uh, a lot of analysis on this. And instead of just spending, as I believe other columnists and hosts have done, uh, the first hour, first half hour, first three hours, whatever it may be, talking about how wonderful the speech was, I want to get into some specifics and take a different perspective on this. And we'll play bits of the speech throughout the show, but in an effort to dive into different parts of the policy because you've already heard it was a really good speech you know it it was a really good speech uh, you even had the new york times and c- people at cnn who hate this president saying look it was effective they didn't of course agree with some of the policy aspects but it was it was reassuring it was calm it was measured it was first and foremost presidential which had been one of the biggest criticisms uh, leveled against this president in the first few weeks of his time in office, but rather than just repeat what's already been said, I always think that I have a, a great advantage here. I've been able to read all the analysis, hear all the hot takes all day, and I can present you with the distillation of the most important uh, thoughts that I have on this and having had the benefit of being able to sift through the hot takes. I mean, I- I'm not a short order cook here on this show. I present you with a multi-course, multi-hour feast. That's how I like to see it. I also have an advantage when we talk about the latest on the Russia story, being a former spy myself, a former intelligence officer with the CIA. When, when you have reporters that are writing about the FBI paying for information, well, I know a bit about that. I know a bit about running sources. It uh, used to be part of my job description. I mean running sources as an intelligence officer, not as a journalist, although I guess I do that now, too. So that's another advantage. But for today, I've been able to see everything that's been put out there. And I want to present you with a different perspective on this than what you've already heard. Because I know, great speech, right? I could sit here and clap. Great speech. Yeah, it was a great speech. I'm not saying it wasn't, but you already know that. But what do you, what have you not heard about this? That's where I wanted to start today. What do Democrats stand for? Think about that question for a minute. I know there was a lot of back and forth over what they literally stood for. I mean, physically, we're willing to stand for. Um, But I mean, more generally, although you can see there are some parallels, uh, there are some connections you can draw between the two. Uh, Opposition to Trump um, is a theme that is now animating the Democrat Party beyond anything else, right? just straightforward opposition to Trump, more so than any specific as- aspect of his policy. But what is the Democratic Party all about? I mean, you listen to what Trump said. You saw what they were willing to clap for, what they weren't. Here's, a, here's a, a, just a quick compilation to put us in the spirit of analyzing this address. Play clip 29.
1: ...to deliver a message of unity and strength, and it is a message deeply delivered from my heart. We may be a nation divided on policies. We are a country that stands united in condemning hate and evil in all of its very ugly forms. We will soon begin the construction of a great, great wall along our southern border. We are also taking strong measures to protect our nation from radical Islamic terrorism. I will be asking Congress to approve legislation that produces a $1 trillion investment in infrastructure of the United States, financed through both public and private capital, creating millions of new jobs. I am also calling on this Congress to repeal and replace Obamacare. The time for small thinking is over. The time for trivial fights is behind us. Our citizens deserve this and so much more. So why not join forces and finally get the job done and get it done right?
2: You see, here's the problem. Here's the problem that the Democrats face. When Trump is presidential, when he gives a good speech, when opposition to everything Trump says and does is not enough, when that doesn't work, what do they offer the american people you heard last night in detail and we'll talk more about it throughout the show today what donald trump is proposing what do the democrats offer what gets them fired up what do they really care about what's interesting is that last night donald trump staked out a lot of territory that a lot of territory that's not necessarily conservative at all it isn't conservative but it will be popular i think and it's the kind of action that you would expect the Democrats to be willing to take themselves. So what do they do now? Vox.com, far left site. They do lots of splainers, which is an explanatory piece or video because they're just open about the fact that they need to explain or explain the news to their readers. They listed out all the promises that Trump made in the speech. I thought this was very helpful. Now, of course, they're doing this to show that he overpromised, that he's lying, that he's not going to do these things. But I want to go through this list for a different reason. But let me just read to you from the promises Trump made last night. Revive dying industries. Fund veterans. Fund the military. Build infrastructure. Stop drug uh, drug epidemic. Help inner cities, save on government contracts, stop drugs from abroad, enforce immigration laws, build the wall, improve immigrant vetting, work with allies to eliminate ISIS, uh, tax relief for the middle class, immigration becomes merit-based, invest a trillion dollars in infrastructure, uh, buy American with infrastructure, remove the individual mandate, allow insurance across state lines, make FDA approval faster, increase defense spending, fund veterans, work to rebuild homes of refugees. What's left for the Democrats? They're so opposed to Trump that I think they've forgotten they have to offer something to the American people. And I know we'll hear, oh, it's so early in the administration. Just give it time. Eric Holder is working together with Barack Obama. There's going to be a sweeping, uh, progressive, liberal movement in this country. They're going to take, right, sure. What do they really offer? They hate Trump so much. They oppose his every move with every fiber of their being. You read down that list, what is there to hate? In fact, there are some items that if the Democrats won't work with the president, it's just out of spite. If Democrats won't go along with a trillion dollars of infrastructure spending, it's just because they they view hating and opposing Trump as more important than helping the American people or even following through on promises that they themselves had made. Obama used to talk about infrastructure spending. So what has changed? Well, it's Trump in charge. As we shall see, there are plenty of areas where the Democrats should be willing to go along, but based on what they were willing to literally stand for last night, but in general, what they stand for now as a party, they've lost America, or at least a large portion of America. That's what they are starting to realize, I think. They rely entirely at the national level on major population centers along the coasts and in Chicago and a few other places. To make them competitive, but as we know, state by state, they're in terrible shape as a party. They don't, have the, they don't have control in Congress. They don't have control of the House or the Senate. They have been losing the American people. They had one politician in Obama who was able to transcend the shortcomings of the Democratic Party's message because as a politician, he was very appealing and he was historic and he was momentous to enough people that he was able to win two elections. Also, I should note, running against one very weak opponent in John McCain, no offense, just true, and then, uh, and of course also the timing of the financial collapse, and then Mitt Romney, who was okay, sort of, I don't think anybody would suggest Mitt, Mitt Romney's inspiring. But what do they stand for? I keep returning to the question. Because after last night, you'd say to yourself, there's a lot of stuff that Trump wants to do that the American people would like to see happen, at least give it a try. And what we hear from Democrats involves a litany, a list of things that I don't think any normal American cares about really at all. I shouldn't say any normal American. I don't think most normal Americans care about at all. Sure, the left-wing progressive base does, but what, what gets the Democrat Party fired up right now? Last night, Trump's talking about tax cuts, infrastructure, uh, jobs, jobs. booming economy, uh, dealing with drugs and inner-city crime. These should be bipartisan. The debate shouldn't be, is this what Trump should be doing? It should just be, well, are we going about this the best way? But they don't want to go along with any of this. They They won't help him. And in their own speeches, at least for the purposes of fundraising and getting attention from the media that supports them, they'll talk about things like, Climate change, transgender rights, Dodd Frank, Citizens United. That's what animates the Democrat Party right now. That's what they seem to care about. Sure, they'll talk about the middle class because that's just the most easy and lazy populism that they can find, right? Oh, well, we care about the middle class. What they're saying is we just want to, we just care about the majority of voters. We just want a majority of voters to vote for. So, however we do that, that's what we'll do. And the middle class, of course, is what most Americans consider themselves to be middle class. And that's where most of your votes come from. So they'll pay lip service to that, but they haven't done anything over the last eight years for the middle class. In fact, as we see from Obamacare, they've piled taxes on top of taxes. They've made the health care that is available to people on the individual market who are either middle class or trying to get into middle class worse They've expanded Medicaid and pretended that that somehow is a huge victory for public health, even though the most comprehensive studies on Medicaid to date show that overall and eventual health outcomes for those with access to Medicaid versus those without it are more or less the same. Having Medicaid doesn't extend your life, doesn't help you, uh, doesn't help you stay healthier necessarily. They've done studies of it, and that's what it shows. So they're expanding Medicaid, which means more bills to the taxpayer, but the Medicaid system itself is very flawed, and you could even say broken. So Trump gives this speech. There's a moment of messaging shift that occurs here. All of a sudden, everyone's saying uh, Trump is presidential. His most devoted political enemies are saying that it was a good speech. But to me, it was very important, not just for showing that Trump has this ability to give a speech that all Americans can listen to and say, well, at least most of that is what we want to hear. Maybe there are some policy issues where, of course, Democrats are going to get upset. They hate the idea of building a wall, even though Democrats in the past used to talk about building walls. But they don't like that whole history being held to account for what they said before thing. That's that's not their that's not their jam. But after last night, I think the Democrats have to ask themselves, what has Trump not taken from us? That's a popular issue. What, what do we have left? What do we have to run on? Obamacare? No one thinks Obamacare is a good idea, really. If they, know, if they know enough about it, they don't think it's a good idea. If they want to run on the falsehoods and the promises that were made and broken about Obamacare, sure. And perhaps some of the people that now have Medicaid who did not have it before feel like they've gotten something from the government and so they're in favor of it but it has not made the system better. It has not improved healthcare outcomes for most Americans. In fact, it's just made the system more convoluted and it's added more taxes onto it. What do they really have? You stood there or rather you sat, I would assume, unless you were actually at the speech. You're at home watching or wherever you were and you saw a presentation of a hopeful, strong and uh, optimistic America by Donald Trump as commander-in-chief. And I just couldn't help but think the Democrats in the room offer you uh, defenses of Islamism and transgender rights, Dodd-Frank, Citizens United, climate change. This is what they seem to care about, what their base seems to care about. Protections for illegal immigrants, that's what they care about. I have to say, I, I don't think that's what a majority of the American people care about. Uh, The Democratic Party is in big trouble, and they know the only way that they can stop from becoming increasingly irrelevant as a party is if they can prevent the implementation of Trump's agenda. Because if he does these things he says he will do and he is successful, they are going to be in the political wilderness for a generation. That's what it felt like for me last night after watching that speech. Uh, Let's go into a break here, and I'll give you a rundown on what we're going to hit the rest of the show. We've got a ton to cover today, team. Stay with me. All right, team, welcome back. I wanted to give you a quick rundown as to what we can expect today on the show, because we are jam-packed, racked, and stacked with fantastic guests. We've got Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist, joining us in just a little bit here. He's a great political analyst. We'll talk to him about what he thought about last night. Also, got Boris Epstein, who's White House Special Assistant to the President, joining to give us the official word from down in D.C., from inside of uh, Trump Topia, what's going on. Um, And then later, we'll be joined by White House correspondent Caitlin Collins to give us some of the aftermath of the speech from the journalist side of things. Steve Moore, a Trump economic advisor and economist, to talk about. The tax cuts, the trade, uh, the trade changes that Trump is promising. So we've got a lot of... Oh, and Ilya Shapiro from the Cato Institute as well (laughs) to talk about the executive immigration order that is coming any day now. So as you can tell, we're covering a lot of ground here. Uh, First, I wanted to note that uh, Van Jones, who's over at CNN, uh, whom I most remember for when we would be put in a debate each other situation, it was always conservative political commentator from The Blaze, Buck Sexton, and political analyst Van Jones. Van, tell us about life and the meaning of it. Buck, be quiet for a minute. Van speaking. That was kind of how it went over there. But Van has obviously been very critical of the administration, and all of a sudden, last night, he had this to say. Clip 44, please, sir. He became president of the United States
3: in that moment. Period. That was one of the most extraordinary moments you have ever seen in American politics, period. And he did something extraordinary. If he finds a way to do that over and over again, he's going to be there for eight years.
2: He was referring to when Chief Owens' wife was given a very long-standing ovation. It was... THE MOST uh, POWERFUL AND POTENT AND IMPORTANT MOMENT OF THE ENTIRE SPEECH. WE WILL SHARE THAT ONE WITH YOU. Uh, CLIP 30, PLEASE.
1: WE ARE BLESSED TO BE JOINED TONIGHT BY Corinne OWENS, THE WIDOW OF U.S. NAVY SPECIAL OPERATOR, SENIOR CHIEF WILLIAM RYAN OWENS. RYAN DIED AS HE LIVED, A WARRIOR AND A HERO, BATTLING AGAINST TERRORISM AND SECURING OUR NATION. I just spoke to our great General Mattis, just now, who reconfirmed that, and I quote, Ryan was a part of a highly successful raid that generated large amounts of vital intelligence that will lead to many more victories in the future against our enemy. Ryan's legacy is etched into eternity. Thank you.
2: It was a very powerful moment. Uh, she, uh, the, the Ryan's widow, uh, uh, Chief Owens' widow, looked up um, in prayer, and, and the, it was moving to the whole room, and it's a, a moment in our politics where I think there was true bipartisanship, and it will be remembered for a long time, uh, and it was very powerful. I should also note, of course, that uh, with Democrats, there are limits to where they can extend their opposition, opposition to the administration, and there were some moments, like this moment with Chief Owens' widow last night, where it was so clearly uh, a, a moment of reflection and patriotism and support that they were willing to say that that's what it was instead of being critical. Um, and, of course, I think for some of them, perhaps Mr. Uh, Van Jones among them, pivoting to being supportive of the presidency for anything is just a way of surprising the audience a little bit because they've been so rabidly anti-Trump that looking for some opportunity to stop doing that is just necessary to not be boring. We've got more coming. I'll be right back.
0: Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're
2: on. Welcome back, Team Buck. We've got our friend Ben Dominich joining us now. He is the publisher of The Federalist, host of The Federalist Radio Hour. He also writes a daily subscription newsletter called The Transom, which is excellent, I might add. Mr. Dominich, thank you so much for calling in. Buck, it's great to be with you again, and congratulations on your success. Thank you so much, Ben. I appreciate it. Uh, Haven't gotten a chance to work with you in a little bit, so we're, we're very pleased that you're joining us once again in the Freedom Hut. So, what matters from last night's speech i know we're all you know everyone's oh it's amazing it's great okay fine we can or i don't know if you think that or not but that's what everybody's saying uh <laughs> what matters though what can we take from it what what are the little signs of things to come
4: so i think that what we can take from it is that we are witnessing a true political realignment in the country and um you know the, the republican party that we've known for the past couple of uh decades, basically, uh, since the rise of William F. Buckley and Ronald Reagan and, you know, Jack Kemp and Paul Ryan, uh, has largely been a party that was very much dedicated to fiscal discipline, uh, to the idea of entitlement reform, to uh, essentially open uh, free trade laws, and uh, a lot of other things that are now being pushed to the wayside. And if you understand Donald, Donald Trump as I do, uh, I think of him as kind of a essentially a reversion of the Republican party to 1968 Richard Nixon and uh, and I think that this speech really showed that in a sense given the policy stances that he took you know many of you know some of which Paul Ryan was you know eagerly clapping for and some of which he was having to swallow hard before he stood and clapped
2: <laughs> what were the biggest departures I and mean, the most obvious one is clearly a trillion a trillion dollars of infrastructure spending That comes right. Obama was asking for that, too. He did a trillion dollars of stimulus spending, which, as we know, was Mm -hmm. a a big grab bag of things that Democrats wanted. And they just gave money to all kinds of different causes. Uh, But a trillion dollars of uh, infrastructure, that sounds like something the Democrats would like. And we're talking about but a few years ago.
4: Yeah. So let me give you let me give you the bad first and then the good. The bad, from my perspective, is. Uh, this is not a presidency an or an administration that's going to care about spending too much of your money. They they are going to spend it and they're going to spend it on a lot of things. They're going to spend it on defense spending. They're going to spend it on infrastructure. They're going to spend it uh, when it comes to building a wall and they're going to spend it on, you know, any a, a whole assortment of things, including, according to, you know, uh, the president last night, paid family leave, which is something that, you know, has been a democratic talking point uh, for years now, uh, in in order to sort of uh, follow in what the in the approach that the Europeans have, the flip side, the good side, is that this is not. A fiscally liberal president. This is someone who, from my perspective, is basically a fiscal moderate in the sense that he also wants to cut taxes. He wants a very big tax break for a lot of Americans. He wants to uh, uh, he wants to fix health care not by giving us a government program, but according to what he was saying last night, he wants to institute a plan that gets people more access to health care by making health insurance cheaper for everyone, which is something that you know is a that is a standard. Paul Ryan loved that, you know, was nodding all along through that segment of things. And he's also going to, you know, I think, keep his word when it comes to a lot of the conservative principles that he espoused during the campaign. We've already seen that in the sense with Neil Gorsuch. So I think the position of conservatives, the position of, you know, people on the in the 40-member Freedom Caucus or, you know, people who are right of center in the in the House or the Senate should be, well, hey, I'm going to see if I can maybe make this infrastructure deal a little bit smaller, maybe spend a little bit less of other people's money when it comes to some of these programs that he wants. But at the same time, I'm going to use his, you know, his aggressive stance When it comes to a lot of conservative ideas uh, to push ahead so i think that that and i think in particular the thing that people should feel happy about out of that list uh, last night is obamacare in the sense that he very easily could have slipped into uh, a big government solution along those lines it seems clear that's not what he wants to do he wants things to be done through the private market not through you know expanding some um, uh, existing government program or something along those lines so, you know, a law and order, big spending, uh, but otherwise conservative nationalist, uh, you know, Republican is now in the White House. And I think a lot of, of Republicans on Capitol Hill are willing to go along with it, at least on the issues where they agree with.
2: Him. Well, I think it's interesting because on the point on on immigration specifically, the, the mainstream GOP, I, I think that's where you could say Trump's actually more conservative in a sense than they are because, He says he wants to enforce the laws. He says that he wants to build a wall. These are issues that in the past the Republican Party has agreed that they've agreed with Trump in the past. They just haven't taken action on this. They haven't done what they've said they're going to do. And he spoke specifically about reforming our immigration system. Play clip 34, please.
1: That real and positive immigration reform is possible as long as we focus on the following goals. To improve jobs and wages for Americans, to strengthen our nation's security, and to restore respect for our laws. Uh,
2: that, this is where I think Trump is, in a sense, more conservative than the GOP mainstream at this point. And when he says that he wants to do something more along the lines of Canada or Australia's point-based system, which th- there are some... Uh, variations in how those two countries do it. But they do look at somebody and say, what's your education level? What, What assets do you have that you'd bring to bear right away? America, I think most people don't even know. We have a chain migration system where if you have a relative in the country, you go to the front of the line, which is not the way I think a lot of people would like it to be.
4: Yeah I, and I would agree with that. The thing that we should keep in mind about this whole immigration issue is that at least when they're running for office, most Republicans tend to sound a much more conservative note. And then when they get into office, uh, they essentially work at the behest of a lot of of national interest groups uh, that are not really interested in changing our immigration system that benefit from it. And I think it's a real it's a real point in Trump's favor that that when he essentially promised, you know, the American people throughout the campaign believe me, these are the things I'm going to do, uh, that he is sticking by that. Now, you know, I disagree with him pretty strongly and vociferously on the issue of trade. I don't like the protectionist language that he was sounding last night. But it does seem to me that when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the movement of people, he's not wrong to say that we should look at other priorities rather than just, do you have a relative who happens to live here? We should look more at the the, the, sort of the economic interests of importing uh, immigrants, especially, uh,
2: you know, this is what people yeah, don't think fair. about when they talk about uh, a pathway, amnesty, uh, that people who are amnestied will, uh, at least unless they were to change the way the system works right now, if you are given permanent legal status, it then becomes much easier for you to sponsor more people from your family. So exactly. th- so the the original pool that is amnestied of people gets much larger very quickly, which I don't think is often factored in, into the discussion. I also want to ask about, because here's another place where I think, I, I hope the Trump administration chases this down and pushes for this because I think school choice... Well, let's hear his words on it and then I want to pose a question to you, Ben. Uh, 33 on school choice funding.
1: In fact, our children will grow up in a nation of miracles. But to achieve this future, we must enrich the mind and the souls of every American child. Education is the civil rights issue of our time.
2: I think this is where... You have two great things going for the Republican Party. One is that it's just right. I, I've read a lot about school choice. I have have friends that have worked for Teach for America and worked at charter schools. And, and everything anecdotal and otherwise that I can pull together is you want to have some options. You don't want to be just relegated to one public school where you live and be stuck there if it's a bad school. Um, So it's right. And also, I think it's an opportunity for Republicans to really make the Democratic Party squirm and twist and writhe in agony, because ultimately it is just about protecting teachers unions for them. It really is. So how do you think they accomplish this?
4: So so here's the here's the thing that I want to keep the folks to keep in mind about this. I'm totally in favor of school choice, but one of the conservative mantras over the years, and I think we need to be cognizant of this, is that education is a state-based system, that it should not be run out of Washington, out of the federal government. So it's going to be tricky to sort of approach this issue and say, how are we going to incentivize, essentially, state-based school choice programs that open up things to everybody? I think I think his rhetoric on it was very good last night. I think the concern that, that policy people have in the education space is, what does that look like in specific? And, uh, you know, as with a lot of other things that relate to this new administration because of the delay in getting them uh, staffed up and getting the right people in the right positions uh, in the in these various departments because of democratic intransigence when it came to uh, approving the cabinet. We're just starting to get the, the shape of these policies and what and what they look like. But it certainly does seem like he's going to be aggressive on this front. Uh, and that and that does, I think, give a lot of encouragement to uh, backers of school choice who know the level of popularity it has across a diverse swath of America, and and certainly I think it is going to be an issue that once it gets going is going to tie a lot of Democrats in knots.
2: What's your take, Ben? I mean, you're down in D.C. and You follow what's going on on the Hill as well as the White House very closely. And uh, I want to know what your what your sense is of the timeline that Republicans are working on now, the, at least the publicly stated timeline for repeal and replace of Obamacare as well as tax reform they're coming out with things like the 200-day plan. This is super complicated. Trump had that slightly unfortunate. No one knew healthcare was this complicated, which they blew out of proportion. But he did say that earlier in the week. Does that? Do you think that this really is just a question of the complexity, or are there some Republicans who are losing their nerve? Not sure they want to go along. Want to sort of see where the wind is blowing on these issues.
4: There are Republicans who have lost their nerve, which I think would not surprise a lot of your listeners. Yeah. Uh, this is this is this is a, look. Here's the situation: It was very easy to be for repeal and replace when you thought that that was something that was not necessarily going to have to happen. Um, now that it is happening, there are you know essentially a number of, of different plans that have leaked out. There are plans that are public, like Rand Paul's, which have the support of strong conservatives in the House, such as Mark Sanford and Thomas Massey and others. It, it, the The real issue, frankly, is this um there are a number of republicans in the house and in the senate who are weaker on these issues because their states are more dependent on medicaid dollars uh, than other states and they don't necessarily want to see the medicaid expansion go away for them so whereas uh in the in the last time they passed a repeal in a way that uh that passed both houses and that the president had to veto the uh, under Obama, the the that repeal included a uh, essentially a a wind down a repeal of the Medicaid expansion under Obamacare. And if, if people aren't paying attention, that's the part of Obamacare that has worked, quote unquote, in the sense that it's signed up a lot of people. Um, and
2: people like free stuff, and it's free stuff. It's yes. it's a welfare it's program.
4: Exactly, and so the real fight is about whether those dollars are going to go away or they're going to be phased out. What that phase out looks like, and this matters a lot to a lot of people in a lot of states, uh, because if you have if you accepted the expansion dollars, you could be put in a place where you you know you can't balance your budget, which of course all states have to do. Uh, Unlike unlike the feds, they don't have funny money and they can't just you know print more. So it's one of these situations where that fight is happening internally among people on Capitol Hill. And it's a fight about billions of dollars. So it's one of these situations where uh, everyone who uh, is a stakeholder in that game, the hospital systems, the doctors groups, everybody else is trying to keep those dollars flowing. Oh, it's, it's,
2: the issue, I just want to say, so resolved, just to keep it totally real here, Ben, there, this, is, this is about politicians who want to keep their jobs and special interests wanting to make sure they keep their piece of the pie exactly. here. That's the slowdown. It's not because it's, not exactly. it's oh so exactly. complicated
4: no it's not because it's complicated it's because you have people who are now have a vested interest in protecting that dollar stream and they don't want that to be included in the repeal internally there's fighting going on about that once that is resolved i think that this really will move forward and timeline wise I think you will see this happen. You'll you'll see this happen before the summer. The the repeal part of it is much easier than the replace part of it uh, because they've done that before. But they need to do the repeal in such a way uh, that uh, can can find some meeting between the fiscal conservatives who want this all to go away and some of these more moderate Republicans who want some kind of phase out or timeline uh, where their states can function without having to. Uh, you know, confront major uh, budget issues.
2: Ben Dominich is the publisher of The Federalist. You guys should all go check out com. It's a great site. And, Ben, if they want to subscribe to The Transom, which I recommend to them, where should they go?
4: They should go to com. And thank you, Buck. It's always a pleasure to be on with
2: you. Great to talk to you, Ben. Come back soon. And, team, we'll be right back. Welcome back, team. Want to hear from you. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK, B-U-C-K, because I'm Buck Sexton, so that's my name. All right. We were having some fun in the break just talking about this here in, in the Freedom Hut at NYC. I don't know who at the DNC needs to get fired, but whoever thought it was a good idea to have former Kentucky governor uh, Steve Bashir as the response. Now, look, in fairness, this is like telling somebody to uh, go on stage w- with, a, you know, I-, I don't know, go on stage with a ukulele. After Led Zeppelin in its prime has played a set, right? I mean, this you're, this is not going to go well. But the, the, the choice here was just bizarre on so many levels. They've got this guy. It, it looks like the way they've set up the shot, it does look like he's going to try to sell you a reverse mortgage or something. I mean, he's, he's bringing you in and he's like, oh, hey, what's, you know, my name is. Well, you know what? Before I even do my version, why don't we hear the real version play it?
5: I was governor of Kentucky from 2007 to 2015. Now I'm a private citizen. I'm here in Lexington, Kentucky, some 400 miles from Washington, at a diner with some neighbors, Democrats and Republicans, where we just watched the President's address. I'm a proud Democrat, but first and foremost, I'm a proud Republican and Democrat. And mostly American. Uh, I love
2: it. I mean, it's not. I know it's a flub, but you know, it can happen to any anybody. I'm a proud Democrat and Republican, but mostly a Democrat. <laughs> I mean, he just. This was such a. And you know, it, the good news is, remember Marco Rubio with the water. I mean, nobody really cares about the response. I I honestly think the whole notion of having a response to the address, I, no matter which party, I I think it comes across as a little. A little me too, me too. You know, just let let the president of his and his party have their thing, and the next day you can do whatever you want. I don't like this immediate response. It, it doesn't it doesn't work for you. But this guy, I mean, they're just like you know, they feel like they're going to get you know America here. They're trying to speak. The Democrats are trying to, so they get a, they get a guy who's a little a little twangy from Kentucky in his accent because they are trying to. Reach more of the, the, the Trump voters, I suppose. I'm trying to think of what the what the play was here. You know, they're they're sitting around in a room at the DNC headquarters. They're like, I've got an idea. I've got an idea. Uh, uh, we need that guy who was once the governor of Kentucky that n- nobody outside of Kentucky knows. Uh, yeah, that guy. Did, well, d- does he does he sound like you know America? Yeah, he sounds America. All right, let's put it, let's put him in. Let's see how this goes. I'm sure he's a nice man. I, you know, nothing against the guy. But this was this was bad. It was. I'm I'm going to keep it real here, too, and tell you that, you know, when Bobby Jindal did a response to State of the Union, all I can remember is at one point him saying, I believe the American people can do anything. And it was like, no, Bobby, this is not. You're a Rhodes Scholar. You're a brilliant guy. Great guy from all, all that I've heard. But this, you're not in your sweet spot with this speech right now. This is not good. It'd be better if you were reaching for the water like Rubio. It was not a good response. See, this is the thing: you don't want a response to this to the State of the Union like address. Just let it, just let it be. You know, have you go on the commentators the can handle the response. Everyone knows which side of the aisle they're on and who they want to hear from. You don't need this official, but you know, this guy was just, you know, I'm just here in a diner because Democrats aren't just about climate change. We're not just about transgender rights. You know, we're and it's like no actually democrats that is what they're about and and when you start to do like we like guns too and we like you know i'm a i'm a uh a gun toting democrat and it's just like the pandering seems so obvious to me and it was not a good speech from this guy it was not a good speech from this guy at all so um that's my take on that we've got a lot more coming up in the next hour stay with me team.
0: The things that matter most in your day to day life are too important to trust to just anyone. That's, that's why. That's why he's here. Buck Sexton with America Now. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton.
2: All right, everybody. We've got Boris Epstein joining now. He is White House special assistant to the president. Boris, thanks for making some time and uh, taking a break from all the high fives, backflips, and uh, champagne drinking that I'm guessing is going on at the White House.
6: Well, <laughs> oh, Buck, thanks for having me. I will tell you that it's uh, we're working hard here. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Now, now after after last night, when the whole nation, all of a sudden, it seems, including many who were either never Trump or deeply critical of Trump, saying things like, well, now it feels like he's the president. Well, putting aside whether that's true or a fair statement or not for them, let's just say there's a lot of work to be done. So what's the what's the aftermath of the, of this been like? What are you hearing from both sides down in D.C.?
6: Well, what we're hearing is that the American public, which tuned in in big numbers uh, last night uh, online and, of course, on TV and and on radio, the American public... Heard exactly and saw exactly what they wanted to—a a authentic president, a real president, a president who's dead set on making America better, America stronger, and America great again—and that, and that's what it's always been about for the for, for the candidate for candidate Trump, and now for President Trump.
2: Is there any sense of surprise uh, in the in the White House communications side of, of things that you're seeing? Even the New York Times, some of the most implacable foes. Of This administration who haven't been willing to wait at all to see what the president even does before they are decrying him, saying that this is fascism, saying that the country is going to collapse under the weight of Trump's uh, ineptitude, all the all the most horrible stuff they can possibly think of. This morning, in some of the major newspapers, including the New York Times, they're saying things like, yeah, he seemed pretty presidential. Uh, is, is there a sense that that's – is that surprising even inside the White House? Or did you guys think, once you knew what was going to be said in that speech, this is pretty much going to be the reaction?
6: Well, what we knew is that this president was going to deliver the exact address that he wanted to and his voice to the American people. Oh, we're not worried about some of those folks in the media. Yeah, and, it, of course, doesn't it, it's good that the, the, they're finally realizing – that they need to be somewhat fair to the president. Uh, and, and, that, and that is key. And we hope it continues. It shouldn't be a surprise when national media is fair to the president of the United States. That should be the baseline. That should be the default. But what we, again, what we care about is the American people. And the American people, uh, overwhelmingly, of course, who are happy with what they saw and heard and now excited to move forward as a country under the leadership of Donald Trump and Vice President Pence.
2: Now, there are some stories, I'm sure you've seen them already, circulating around from different news outlets where the They are suggesting that the initial reports came out right before the speech in the hours before the speech that Trump was going to offer some kind of a deal that would allow for really would allow for amnesty. There would be a comprehensive immigration reform. He would at least allude to that, if not outright make that proposition. Clearly, that didn't happen. So is this they're using bad sources or is this the administration changing its mind and maybe doing a little misdirection to keep the reporters on their toes? (laughs)
6: <laughs> no, we're not in the game of misdirection, my friend. We're, you know, we are here focused on making America better, making Americans better, uh, and making their lives better. That's what we're doing. And you know, the media will report uh, anything they hear from so-called anonymous source. Source. That's that's their business. Our business is is to work hard and and to focus on the priorities set forward by the president.
2: The agenda items the president hit last night were uh, were varied and 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 pretty comprehensive. He he hit a whole lot, including. Uh, infrastructure spending, a trillion dollar infrastructure spending. I know he got into a little bit of the details as to it would be public and private sector and Congress will have to act on this. Is this the place where there's a sense that the administration will be able to to peel off some Democrats? Is this the first issue where it's so clear that there will be both popularity for this uh, kind of move As well as a need for infrastructure spending, I know people who work just on the financial side of things uh, here in Wall Street, New York, and they say, "Look, there's a lot of there's a lot of need for infrastructure spending." Uh, Is this where they think they're going to get the first real bipartisan action of this administration? Meaning, the Democrats will come over.
6: the president, is hoping to work across the aisle with. A, a large number of Democrats the Senate Democrats house Democrats on a cross section of issues, and he 's someone who reached out to, to Senate Democrats early on in, you know in the first couple of days of the administration and you know of course, Judge Corsage has been meeting with Democrats in order to to you know to move toward confirmation, which we expect to be to happen quickly uh, and and to get done in an expedited manner, and we need the rest of the cabinet uh, to get get confirmed in an expedited manner as well so the president is absolutely open to working across the aisle. And, and it's a focus of his. He's worked with Republicans and Democrats throughout his life. And that was one of the points throughout the campaign as well.
2: Can you give us a sense of what some of the uh, the next action items will be? Clearly, the president has reset the national conversation with this speech. There was a a, a change, or at least a perception, that there was a change in his tone in this speech from other uh, other major addresses or major speeches that he's given in the past. So what what can people listening now... Uh, look to in the days and weeks ahead for this White House to take to, you know, take those words from last night, which were in a bipartisan fashion. A lot of people said very impressive, very effective speech. But those were words. Now we have to move to action. What can they expect in the weeks ahead?
6: Well, it's been such a productive first five and a half weeks. And look for that productivity to continue uh, on everything from deregulation to taxes to Obamacare. Of course, that's one of the key issues. The president talked about education, school choice, education being the true civil, civil rights issue of our era. Uh, the president outlined a lot, you, you know, a very robust vision. Uh, he talked about beliefs. Mission and vision, uh, and uh, you know and uh, you know, the, the beliefs are our basis as a democracy, and that's a belief that every problem is solvable.
2: Can you speak uh, to the president's confidence in the Republican, uh, Republican congressional leadership uh, going along with the promises that he has made? Clearly, he can he's made his case to the American people. He was elected president. Now he continues to sell the case for a whole bunch of different major items, health care, immigration. Taxes, but he needs Congress to go along with them. What's the sense of both the what's the what's the White House's sense of the Republican leadership and their willingness to get this done? And and also, are, are you starting to starting to get a feeling that that there are going to be there are going to be more Democrats coming along than maybe some would have thought previously?
6: Well, there are going to be more Democrats coming along, and the Republicans in the Senate and the Congress have been great. Uh, there was a working lunch today. The President continues to not take any breaks and, and work. Uh, fast and hard to, you know, on his agenda on the points that we've been talking about. And that's going to continue. And uh, and he does expect, of course, full cooperation from Repo- Republicans on the hill.
2: Can you tell him that he has to order his steaks medium rare? I mean, it's just not right to order the well done, Boris. You know this. Well, that's a personal preference. <laughs> it, it is indeed a personal preference. Absolutely. Uh, Boris Epstein is White House special assistant to the president. Boris, always appreciate it when you make some time for us. Uh, keep up the good work down there. We'll talk to you soon.
6: Thanks. Great to talk
2: to you. Was the Yemen raid successful, they keep asking. The operation where uh, we lost a U.S. Navy SEAL, Chief Owens, and we had others, uh, other members of SEAL Team 6 wounded, civilians killed in the crossfire. Media keeps asking this question. Now, uh, we need to address this because, first of all, I see here NBC News reporting officials still no actionable intel from Yemen SEAL raid. And they even say, they even name 10 officials, 10 officials here as the sources. They don't, of course, give their names, but they're trying to make a very clear case that this raid was nothing. Now, this is obviously political, and let me just get you into the details here for a moment. Uh, I, I was a former CIA officer. I worked with case officers, the people in the field handling assets or agents, Anyone who ever tells you they're a CIA agent, be skeptical because we, we, we're not agents, we are officers. And people go outside the wire in the war zones, whether for the agency or U.S. military, human operations, the human intelligence, human. And they may not come back from those meets. They risk their lives when they go outside the wire, just as members of the military, Marines, Army, all the other armed services. When they're in the red zone, when they go outside the wire or on base, too, they can be hit by mortar fire. Anytime you're in a war zone, there are risks. And when you engage in what would be a clandestine op trying to take out a senior leader of what is possibly the most dangerous Al-Qaeda franchise in the world, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, there are risks in that. We might lose some of ours, and we did lose one of ours. And there will be future raids, and it is likely we will take casualties in those raids as well. This is a tragic reality of combat, of intelligence operations, of military, clandestine military operations. Anytime that you are putting our people in harm's way, there can be this result. How this is all of a sudden such a shock to the media, and by the way— How many of you, just ask yourself this question as I'm speaking to you about this right now, how many of you could tell me what percentage of those killed fighting for our country in Afghanistan died under Obama's eight years in office when he ramped up troops in Afghanistan to make it clear that that was the good war, Iraq was the bad war, right? That's the proposition that he came into office stating 75% 75% of our killed in action in Afghanistan under Obama's watch. Where, where were all the protesters? Where was the anti-war movement? You know where the media was on that. Back to the Yemen raid. Now they're saying there was no intelligence gathered from this raid. That's what this NBC News report is saying. Others have said the same thing. They're quoting anonymous sources. I want to know who these sources are because they need to shut their mouths. They shouldn't be talking about what we may or may not have gotten from a raid against an al-Qaeda target in Yemen. That is wildly inappropriate. It's a betrayal of their oath, and it's most likely illegal. The the DOCX, document exploitation, the site exploitation they do on this kind of a raid, that that information is not to be publicized, at least not right away, maybe— Many months later, we still don't know everything that was taken at the at the bin Laden compound. Think about how many years ago that was. Saying that there's no actionable intelligence, that's what we're being told. They are giving the enemy valuable information by saying that, by printing that in newspapers and putting that on TV, because to them it's more important to hurt the Trump administration it's more important to call the commander in chief's judgment into question than it is to do their jobs and to abide by their sacred oath to uphold and defend the Constitution, to assist, to defend the American people, and to take the fight to our enemies, and to shut up about classified. I cannot believe there are officials inside the Pentagon, or maybe it's the Intel community, who think that they should be commenting at this stage on whether there was valuable information gathered. Because you see, the enemy, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and its allied tribal fighters in Yemen, they're going to know some of what was there. They get a vote in all of this, too. They will react based upon what they know. And if we have news reports coming out from people that are credible, and you can judge for yourself how credible you find this, that's saying... We did or did not get valuable information from that raid. That's giving them information that they shouldn't have. Who would speak out about this? What purpose does it serve? You see, they're trying to convince the American people that Trump was reckless, that he ordered our uh, Navy SEALs, he ordered SEAL Team 6 into a dangerous operation just as a show of bravado. There was no reason, there was no purpose to it. And that's the case they're trying to make. And so to bolster that case, they're now saying, well, these officials said there's not much information coming from this raid. NBC News down lower in the report, I should tell you all, says another U.S. official, however, said the information contained hundreds of contact details from a variety of communication apps suggesting possible links to the Europe and U.S., oh, okay, so you've got a bunch of officials. We don't know what their level of access is. Telling the press that there was nothing valuable that was seized from an intelligence perspective from that op in Yemen where we lost uh, Chief Owens and there were more wounded as well in the SEAL team. And then later on, lower down in the piece, later on you find out, well, well, hold on a second. Messaging apps? Contacts in Europe and the United States? If you're using a an encrypted messaging app as a U.S. citizen or as a European to talk to guys who are in Yemen who are part of Al-Qaeda or fighting alongside Al-Qaeda, I think we want to know. But I think that would be really valuable information, don't you? We know for a fact that some of the most horrific mass casualty attacks in Europe have occurred because of the plotting and planning that involves these communication apps you can download on your phone. This has been a big problem for the European intelligence services. It's a problem for ours as well. All these new apps coming out all the time have to break the encryption, and there's many of them, and it's hard to monitor. But that, to me, sounds like exactly the kind of information that you'd hope to gather from this sort of raid. So there's a part of me that wants to say, which is it? But we know that it's not really about how valuable the information is, at least not to those who are speaking to the press and not to NBC News and much of the mainstream media here. There's a story. They're chasing facts that fit the story. The story is not about this raid against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and its aftermath. The story is Trump is reckless. He has bad judgment as a commander in chief. He's not a brilliant military tactician like Barack Obama with the bin Laden raid. Of course, when you look at the facts of this raid in Yemen, you find out that the Obama administration had been planning it for months. And they were hoping to get a senior al-Qaeda leader to capture and or kill or maybe just capture whatever the orders were. A senior al-Qaeda leader in Yemen. If you're going to defeat this enemy that we're fighting now, and it's an enemy that I am familiar with on a personal level, it's the same enemy we fought in Iraq with al-Qaeda in Iraq. The same enemy we deal with when you look at the Islamic State and its operations in Afghanistan and around the world now. The Taliban that played host to Al-Qaeda was allied with Al-Qaeda. All different variations of a similar, uh, of, of the same enemy, really. If you're going to defeat that enemy, you have to take the fight to them. And if you're going to take the fight to them, that means risks. There will be risks. You see, part of the problem of just relying on drones is that drones can't pick up a hard drive for you. Drones can interrogate somebody on the ground. They can only give you you know, the video picture, which we've all seen different times. And they can blow up the bad guys, which, yes, can be very useful. But from an intelligence perspective, oftentimes sending in a team of highly trained operators to the objective to possibly detain our enemy, as well as to go through all of the document exploitation you can at that site. That's how you really get leads. That's how you're able to map out networks. That's how you're able to stop the next attack. Drones are a tactic, not a strategy. If you want to build a successful counterterrorism strategy, you need information, and you don't get information, or you don't get enough information By having drones loiter over different target sites, armed or unarmed, you need to know more about the inner workings of these organizations and even better, if you can get somebody from that organization under questioning, you might be able to find out what the next wave of attacks will look like. We should not forget what it felt like when there were eight months in a row. Uh, that there were, at the end of Obama's presidency, eight months in a row where there were major mass casualty terrorist attacks, either in the U.S., Europe, or Turkey. And hundreds of people lost their lives together in those attacks. And it really shook us up. And there was a recognition that ISIS had infiltrated into the West, had infiltrated much more thoroughly into Europe than America. But Some of us have been wondering, maybe it's just a matter of time. Maybe we don't know. That also, of course, brings up the question, maybe the Trump administration is worried about what will happen for the next attack with its immigrant executive order, and it's not actually about Islamophobia and being mean and being cruel. But this game that the media is playing right now of going to anonymous sources who purportedly have access— to sensitive and classified material taken from an al-Qaeda target during a raid with SEAL Team 6 in Yemen that they think they should be weighing in on this is an outrage. It just goes to show you there are a lot of people, and unfortunately there's some in the government too, for whom politically hurting the Trump administration is a more important goal than defending the American people and defeating our most evil and determined allies. That is is a scary thought, my friends, but it's one we need to keep in mind. We'll be back right after the break.
0: Buck is back. Hey everybody, Buck's back. It's more of America now. Throw in your two cents. one 844 buck That's one 844
2: 2825 Team Buck, the lines are open. You just heard the gentleman, 844 2825 if you want to call in. What do you think about Trump's Address last night, maybe even more fun. What do you think about the Democrat response? If you want to weigh in on that, do call. Lines are open. Light them up, my friends. We're joined by Caitlin Collins now. She is the Daily Caller's White House correspondent. She's checking in with us from the West Wing, although she's not there right now. But Caitlin, thanks for calling in.
7: Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me.
2: Uh, all right, what was the buzz like today in correspondent in White House correspondent world after that speech last night? Were they just all oh, good heavens, what do we say now? It was a good speech.
7: Yeah, it was very interesting. There was a lot of reluctant praise for the president's speech last night. A lot of people were saying, yeah, it was great. He did a great job reading off the teleprompter, which is, you know, something that everyone does who gives a speech like that. Um, And they didn't really want to praise him, but he did a good job. He was very presidential last night. There were a few people on the other side of the aisle, who were willing to say, you know what, you did a good job. That wasn't the Trump I'm used to seeing, and I liked it. I hope I see more of that.
2: Now, Don Lemon, speaking of people that were disparaging the president for reading off of a teleprompter, Don Lemon, who used to have me on his CNN show with some frequency, I think I'm off his Christmas list now. I don't know why, but maybe because I tell people what I think about CNN these days. Uh, He said the following about Trump's speech. Clip uh, 41, please. To me, it sounds like a speech that was written for someone
4: that he was reciting, and there were some big words and big phrases that I don't think that he actually connected to. It sounded to me, and this is just, I mean, I thought it was, he sounded very presidential. This was a speech written by a college student for someone else, trying to use big words to impress that the person who was reciting it did not know the meaning of the words.
2: We got nothing? I I, I don't even know what Don's really trying to say there. Uh, I do know that, first of all, it was a speech written, for, written by someone else, as all presidential speeches are, especially Obama's, by the way. Uh, but it seemed like there was a disconnect. People were like, I must hate Trump, must hate Trump. So even when the speech is good and everyone says it was well delivered, uh, well, he didn't write it. Okay, so what does that mean?
7: Yeah, he said it sounded like it was a speech written by a college student someone who was trying to use big words to impress the person.
2: Trump yes, never uses big words, by the way, except huge.
7: Exactly, and I didn't, I didn't get that feeling at all last night when I listened to the speech. I thought it was a lot of his campaign promises, and he touted his accomplishments and called on Congress to help him. But in no way did I think he was reading a speech that you know was written for Barack Obama or something like that. And Donald Trump wrote that speech himself. Yes, he had the input from a lot of his advisors, but he was the one who wrote it. So if Don Lemon is saying it didn't look like he wrote it, I don't really know what he thinks he's gonna accomplish with that.
2: Yeah, but did you did you feel like some of the some of the other correspondents from from outlets and networks that aren't particularly pro Trump were they a little sad on the inside today? You could tell me, Caitlin.
7: I'm not sure about that. Honestly, I think a lot of people were pleasantly surprised that they, you know, I guess it was nice to have a day off of criticizing Oh, okay. So so
2: they actually think Trump is, they think that Trump is Hitler, and this made them think for a day, well, maybe he's not Hitler. Is that how it went?
7: Right. Well, what was funny to me was instead of, you know, you can't just praise him for having a good speech. He had a really good night. He had a good speech. But instead of praising him, the people who always criticize him were like, well, maybe this is a new Trump and this is a reset. But if you've been paying attention for the last year and a half, you know that that guy up there last night was the same Trump. Nothing was different. He was just a little bit more tempered, which is exactly how he was the night that he won the election. So it's the same person just because he's, his message and his tone is a little bit different doesn't mean it's this new Trump. You know, a seven-year-old man doesn't change personalities overnight and all of a sudden give this speech.
2: Agreed. Um, did they give you guys some kind of a after-action briefing today or anything? What what happened today for uh, for in, in the press pool?
7: There was no briefing today. There was just an off-camera gaggle with Sean Spicer, the press secretary.
2: Ah, were you allowed to go to the gaggle, and were you allowed to tell us?
7: Yeah, yeah, they let everyone go to the gaggle.
2: Oh, uh, you mean the New York Spicer. Times isn't banned and CNN isn't banned, which it's ridiculous they use that word. They didn't get invited once.
7: Exactly, banned. Yeah, when they say that, you know, they do a flashback to Spicer's comments a year ago when he said that he thinks uh, only a dictatorship would ban people, Ban media outlets from stuff like that he was saying banned you know not inviting someone to an extended pool where one person is going to send out an email to everyone else about what the press secretary said is not banning someone or preventing their first amendment rights
2: it is it is not a ban indeed neither is the Muslim ban a ban but that's or, or a ban of Muslims. That's a discussion for another time. I got to ask you about something that, that got some headlines today. Oprah, oh, Oprah is think oh, yeah. is thinking about making a People are saying, "Play clip 39, please."
0: So I never considered the question, even a possibility. I just thought, "Oh,
2: oh." All right, because
3: it's clear that uh, you don't need government experience to be elected president of the I, United States, I right?
0: I thought, "Oh, gee, I don't have the experience. I don't know enough. I don't know." And Now I'm thinking, "Oh."
2: Yeah. All right. Uh, Caitlin, I I can't speak to Oprah's uh, political uh, skills or acumen one way or the other. I think if she ran, it actually would be pretty interesting and she might have a shot. I got to say, obviously, she'd run as a Democrat. I don't know. I I know that she's probably just joking around today. But I, I do think that what we've seen with both Obama and Trump is that celebrity... And political power go hand in hand now. And, I mean, and never mind some of the others, whether we're talking about lower level, uh, whether you have Jesse Ventura, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Al Franken, all uh, all celebrities before they became politicians. Although Al Franken calling yeah. him a celebrity is probably too generous. But go ahead.
7: And saying, you know, oh, I think she might have been kidding. People also thought kid, Trump was kidding when he said he was going to run for president originally. People thought he was kidding and- as
2: he was running for president. I knew people who were like, this is all a joke. It's all a scam. And that's when he was going, you know, going around giving speeches all over the country and was a formerly a candidate.
7: That's very true. Um, I don't know. I would consider voting for Oprah. I really like her. I think she's a great talk show host. I'd like to hang out with her. But I don't know how she would do running the country, but I think she would be all right.
2: Yeah. Well, I think she'd be a for- I really think she'd be a formidable candidate. And uh, <laughs> I wonder, I wonder that the Democrat bench. Everybody was, was talking about this after you had um, – well, what's his – I'm forgetting the guy's name for a second here. The guy from Kentucky who gave that uh, – um gave that speech, which oh, was God. just – yeah, not, not getting it done with that speech. Uh, people are realizing that the Democrats have right now a charisma deficit at the top of their party.
7: To say the least. I mean, look at who their candidate was last year. Like, the least charismatic person that might exist. Oh, Hillary's
2: wonderful.
4: Sorry.
7: That response last night was awful. Like, the minute it came on the screen, especially after seeing Trump's speech, you know, it's hard to follow the president at any time, but especially after he gives such a good speech like that, where he has a moment with this SEAL's widow. But that backdrop was awful. I mean, it looks like mannequins or hostages were sitting behind him as he gave this address. And they couldn't have picked a lower energy person than him. It,
2: it reminds me of when John Kerry was was running against Bush, and all of a sudden you'd see Kerry in different places with the with the rolled up sleeves, and you know, trying to eat a. Uh, a hoagie or a Philly cheesesteak or or whatever, you know, just one of the guys. And and Kerry looks when you put Kerry in that setting, he, he looked about as as comfortable as like the, the third Earl of Surrey when he had to dine with the servants in 19th century England or something. I mean, he just was not it was not happening for that guy at all. With was like, oh, I'm just, you know, another blue collar guy like you. Uh, when, when the Democrats started to pull that daughter. stuff. They really—they have a—they have a lot of elitists in their party. I think it comes across.
7: Yeah, don't don't put, set up shop in a diner, like you know. That's just almost demeaning to the American people to make them think that you're just one of them. It's pretty aware that, or they're pretty. The American people are pretty aware that they're not. And I don't know. It just wasn't a good look for them. But you're right. They definitely should have picked someone better. Anyway.
2: Yeah, I think even they, I think even they know they should have picked somebody better because everybody was like, I actually felt, I actually felt bad for him. You know, he's like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Democrat, but I'm a Republican first. It's like, oh no, no, not in the first like twenty seconds. You don't want to call yourself a Republican first. Uh, we all make mistakes, but yeah, that, that was weak. We got, we got to see who they, uh, who they trot out to be the, the the future of the party because if they're really going to pin all their hopes to Elizabeth Warren. And Corey Booker, I think they're in I think they're in for a surprise and they're in for some trouble. But we'll see. Anything you're working on, Caitlin, you want to bring to our attention or just dailycaller.com and its general awesomeness?
7: Yeah, definitely. Check out dailycaller.com. I just did an interview with Sean Spicer today that should be up on the website shortly.
2: Oh, fantastic. We will check it out. Tell Vince and the whole crew I send a high five and a shield tie.
7: I definitely will. Thank All right, you.
2: Caitlin. Thanks for joining. Great to have you. Team phones are open, 844-900-2825. Any thoughts on the speech last night or any thoughts on whatever you want to share? Light them up. I'll be right back. Team, we're going to talk more about immigration in the next hour, but main story up on the Drudge Report right now just caught my eye in the break. An immigrant has been, an an illegal immigrant, has been detained. They just say immigrant now. Now all, this is the insidious language game that they're playing it went from illegal aliens must be called illegal immigrants to illegal aliens must be called uh undocumented to illegal aliens must now just be called immigrants it's all immigrants so that when you talk about policies that will affect the illegal community and that will end up with some being deported or going through a process of possible deportation they just refer to them as immigrants and they refer to trump as anti-immigrant isn't it Pretty amazing that the president of the United States is married to a legal immigrant. The first lady of the United States is an immigrant, and yet the Trump administration is written about and thought of by so many as anti-immigrant. No, they're anti-illegal immigrant. This would be like saying, uh, th- "They're uh, you know, and anti- that store is anti-customer." No, the store is anti-shoplifting. It's not anti-customer but shoplifting is not the kind of customer that they want. They don't want people coming in and taking stuff. They want them to pay for it. They want them to break the law. No, no, no. Shoplif- shoplifters are customers, too. They're anti-customer over there. This is exactly what... It's the same same concept, same idea. Those who break the law are the same as those who stay within the bounds of a law. This is nonsense. Uh, this is very dangerous. It's so funny. I'm seeing these... Uh, ads now of people that are reading for George Orwell and they the, the left has rediscovered Orwell. And it's, they seem to forget that or- Orwell, um, hated so much of what the modern left represents in this country. Thought police, speech police, using words that aren't accurate as to what you are saying, you know, u- using words that are, uh, euphemisms that mislead that, you know, Talking about being pro-choice, for example, what does that even mean? Pro-choice, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm pro-choice about a pizzeria uh, and what they serve and what I can order there. I'm not pro-choice about what they talk about being pro-choice, but I digress. Um, so anyway, on the immigrant issue, they, the uh, see, and it happens to me too. And I said, on the immigrant issue, on the illegal immigrant issue, everyone's. It, I don't know any Republicans who are anti-immigrant. I don't know any who just think that people that come through the process legally. Uh, are somehow bad or they don't want them i've never met i've never met somebody in my life who was anti-legal immigrant maybe they thought that a million a year is a lot we should cut back a little bit but but that was anti-immigrant that didn't like immigrants never i've never i've never met anybody that holds that position so i would just like to know where this all comes from Oh, but if you're anti-illegal immigration, which I should note, a lot of legal immigrants are anti-illegal immigration, but that never gets brought up into this discussion because they had to go through the process, they had to pay the money, have the uh, have the immigration lawyers deal with all of that, and finally got through. And now others are just skipping the line and taking it for themselves as though it was owed to them. So the story in the Drudge Report, though, and I'm I'm going uh, a bit long here, and I'm going to be running out of time. You have Daniela Vargas, 22 years old, was detained by, uh, immigrations and customs enforcement agents, earlier today, after she gave a speech in downtown, uh, Jackson, uh, where she said that she said that she was, here illegally. Um, so she may be covered under DACA, according to her claims. Uh, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement says, no, she's just a visa overstay and she is detained. She is currently in in, in Immigrations and Customs Enforcement detention. I've got to say a couple things here. First of all, that we've seen so many of these rallies that the Democrat Party will invite to a State of the Union address. Illegals. And they'll be there because they're in the country illegally. the, The Democrats are celebrating lawlessness but that people would stand up and say, I'm illegal, what are you going to do about it? And just make a mockery of the federal statutes about who can stay and and who has to go. We've gotten used to that somehow. That's normal, that's commonplace. You see this all the time. Why is that okay? Never mind, of course, when there are these rallies that occur in response to a, a discussion, not even necessarily a crackdown on illegal immigration, and all of a sudden there are all these foreign flags, often Mexican flags, but flags from different foreign countries at rallies on U.S. soil. I I think there's a lack of understanding among the illegal immigrant community that that is not the the way to win over the American people to your cause. Um, But here you have this this, uh, young woman who is in ICE custody now. She's being detained because she's here illegally. And we're going to see that there's a lot of reporting about how unfair this is and how sad this is and terrible it is. But if you're going to be, this is what the the modern left often forgets. They like to compare themselves to civil rights heroes and everything they do, right? Uh, a woman being a or a man being able to use a woman's bathroom is a civil is a civil rights issue now. They say, which really demeans the civil rights movement. But conversation for another day, I suppose. But they will claim that that is how they feel about themselves. Meanwhile, they don't seem to understand that civil disobedience, which of course was part of the civil rights movement and there is a tradition of that in this country, if you are going to engage in civil disobedience, you have to be willing to suffer the legal consequences and face the legal system. That's, that's the way it works, right? If you're going to sit in the middle of a traffic circle and block traffic, you will be arrested. And then you can plead your case before a jury or a judge, but you don't get to break the law and say that you're standing up to the system and expect that the system isn't going to take any action. That's that's not how it works. In civil disobedience, you show a willingness to go to jail, a willingness to suffer the consequences under law of your action because you believe that you are so justified in those actions that this will raise attention to your cause— And that your fellow Americans will do the right thing in your eyes and not uh, punish you for what you've done because of your cause. That's how civil disobedience works. Standing up and saying, I'm an illegal and illegal should be allowed to stay because it's a human rights issue or whatever it is that they're saying. Um, Well, if you stand up and say that you are standing up and proclaiming that you are in violation of U.S. law. And we do have a law enforcement community here that is supposed to deal with that. And when they do, I would prefer it that those who are standing up and chanting and, and yelling about how they're here illegally being understanding of the fact that, yeah, they're probably going to get arrested for that now because they are breaking the law and they're saying they're breaking the law. This should not come as a surprise to anybody.
0: Buck. Buck. Hey, everybody. Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825.
2: Let's talk Trumponomics, everybody. The Trump economy. No better person to have weighing in on this than Steve Moore. He is a Trump economic advisor, a Heritage Foundation distinguished fellow and an economist by trade. Steve, great to have you.
5: Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm so excited about what, that speech last night.
2: I I really
5: yeah, you, think that, that Trump hit on so many of the the you know the the key buttons that we need to push to get this economy going. You
2: sound like you're still fired up about it. I like it. It was it was a good speech. I, I am. In, <laughs> it was a good speech indeed. Let's talk a bit about uh, some of the key the key points that he he hit on that, that touch on the economy. First of all, tax cuts. Uh, he was saying there's going to be a big middle class tax cut. How how is that going to work out?
5: Well, you know, there weren't a lot of details uh, last night about how the tax cut was going to work. I, I happen to think what we need to do first, right out of the gate, <clears throat> is get the the business taxes down. We, You know, we have the most insane, anti-growth, complicated business tax system in the world, and it hurts jobs. We've seen businesses moving out of this country um we, excuse me we've seen you know Medtronics and we've seen uh you know johnson controls burger king um pfizer one of our great drug companies have moved out of the united states taking jobs with them moving to canada or ireland or china or india uh because of our high taxes so i i really do believe if we could get those business taxes down a lot of those companies would move back to the united states they would move back to pennsylvania and michigan ohio and and uh, my home state of Illinois and other places, and rebuild this economy. So that's got to be where we start.
2: Get, hey, but, get, okay, Steve. But if you if you got a if you got a guy listening right now who's pulling in fifty thousand dollars a year, uh, you know, r- running a small yeah. business, let's say a, a, an auto body shop, uh, yeah. w- what is he going to get out of the Trump tax cuts? I mean, what's okay, it going to do for great him?
5: Point. That's a great question. So the plan that you know, I helped put together for Donald Trump uh, many months ago, and I think this will remain in the final plan, every one of the 27 million small businesses in this country will get a lower tax rate. So let me, let me say that again because it's so important, that we have 27 million small businesses in this country. Did you know that, by the way, 27 million? Uh, every one of them, including the auto repair shop, is going to get a tax cut under uh under donald trump and that tax cut can be used to purchase more equipment or expand their facility or hire more workers or pay their workers more so the, you know if you want healthy businesses you have to have healthy
2: jobs but what about the individual tax rate of somebody who is you know right in the in the, in the what is the average American household I think earns something like forty seven thousand dollars a year isn't that or 43 47 around there uh so what is it what is the individual tax rate going to look like for the for people that fall into that? Uh, you know that that category of median income
5: We estimate about two thousand dollars a year in savings on your taxes. You'll pay a lower rate, uh, and uh, and so you know, for a family that's making fifty-five, sixty thousand dollars a year, they'll save a couple thousand a year, and they need it. You know, the average family after tax has not seen a pay raise now for, for fifteen years in this country, and we need to raise up the incomes of our middle class because, of course, the middle class is the backbone of our economy.
2: Now, I got to push you on the tariff issue a little bit here, Steve. I know you're an economist by trade, and. And most conservative economists that I talk to say tariffs are bad. We shouldn't do tariffs. This isn't conservative. This isn't smart. But Trump, I know, is saying, look, free trade is great, but we're not already in a free trade game because other countries are putting tariffs on our goods. So why wouldn't we respond? So is there more to the argument than that? I mean, what what do, do people that are listening to other economists who are conservative and who are uh, devotees of of you know, Reagan and conservatism stretching back to, to Goldwater days, they look at this and they say tariffs are bad. What do you say to them?
5: Well, look, I'm very much in favor of, tra- of trade. And international trade is one of the things that's really lifted the incomes of not just Americans, but people all over the world, especially the poorest people in the world, have benefited from trade because they have access to goods and services they would never have. So I'm in favor of trade, obviously. Um I, and I think when it comes to like NAFTA, I think on balance NAFTA needs to be tweaked a little bit, but it's been a very positive thing for all three of our countries: Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Um, so I don't want to see tariffs against Canada. I, and I'll tell you this: I don't want to pay, uh, you know, uh, you know, fifteen, twenty percent more for my Corona when it comes to, from Mexico. I
2: hear you on that, Steve. I love tequila myself, so <laughs>
5: yeah. But look, when it comes to China, I think that uh, Trump has a point. China's not playing by the rules they are cheating they're stealing our technologies to the tune of about 200 billion dollars a year uh and they don't pay us for it and i think it's time i like the idea of donald trump getting you know tough with china saying look we need Uh, You know, you need us more than we need you. If you don't start playing by these rules and if you don't start uh, compensating us for, you know, the computer software and drugs and vaccines and amazing technologies we developed in the United States that often cost billions of dollars, you know, we're going to impose a tariff on you. Now, that might just be a bargaining chip to get China to behave itself, because I think China has become very adversarial to the United States. And, uh, you know, I think we can't block turn a blind eye to the real challenge in the United States that China presents.
2: Now, do you take the perspective—I've uh, heard others saying this. I want to know what your uh, your response would be, that, well, a trade war is bad, but we're currently in a trade war with China. It's just only one side is fighting it. That's what I hear.
5: <laughs> That's the Trump line. And, you know, there's some truth to that. There really is. I think, you know, you've got a communist country that still, you know, does not honor human rights. And, uh, you know, they're saber rattling out in the uh, South China Sea. Um, I think, you know, I think Trump taking a taking a tougher position with China is long overdue. We have to rec- You know, it was funny. I just finished reading um, the book by um uh, you know, about the uh, killing the rising sun by Bill O'Reilly. And he notes that, you know, in the five or six years before World War II, before Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, we were providing steel, we were providing all the energy for Japan, and we allowed them to build their military machine. So let's not let, um, you know, now I'm not saying that we're going to have World War III with China, God forbid. But I do think, look, China, I'll give you just one example China should and could stop. North Korea from building from building and developing a nuclear bomb Uh, China can prevent that from happening why not go to the negotiating table saying you know North Korea is one of the greatest dangers to this planet you China have to do something about stopping them from getting a bomb why not do that say if you don't you know what we're going to put some you're not going to have open access to American markets.
2: Steve, one last one for you that I know you got to go. Republicans in Congress, are you worried that some of them are going to lack the necessary uh, spinal stiffness to do something real on taxes?
5: I am. I do worry about that every night. I think that look, the Republicans have a mandate from the voters. Uh, you know, they they've been very clear about what they want to do on Obamacare and, and tax cuts. They've got to get it done, and they've got to done it get it done quickly. And I worry that every week they wait, it becomes less likely than it's going to happen. I'm off. The reason I have to jump off a little early tonight with you is I'm going over to meet with uh, you know Speaker Ryan and some other other Republicans in the Senate to tell them exactly this in person. Don't wait. Don't 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 stop it. Go get this thing done and get it done quickly. I wish the only thing I was missing from the speech last night, I wish Donald Trump had said to Congress, I want you to get me a tax cut in the first hundred days of your administration of this administration. Why wait?
2: Yeah, no, I agree. I think they're waiting too long. But uh, give Paul a high five for me. And uh, Steve, (laughs) Steve Moore is the Trump economic advisor and a Heritage Foundation fellow. Steve, great to have you. We'll have you back soon. Uh, Have a good night. Okay. take care. And uh, team, we got to hit a break here, but want to talk some Russia dossier on the other side. I'm a former spy. I know how this stuff goes. We got to get into it. I'll be right back. All right. So they're not going to let this Russia story fade. And sure enough, earlier this week, the Washington Post reported this. And and this is what you expect. What was Oh, this? I'm sorry. This was yesterday. So when I say earlier this week. This just broke yesterday. It was overshadowed. By the Trump address, uh, and now they're now the Washington Post and CNN picked it up too, because you have the the really the anti-Trump axis is the Washington Post, CNN, the New York Times. There are a lot of others that want to get in on the want to get in on the action, but the top three are the Post, the Times, and CNN, uh, MSNBC. Because it was so far left with Obama, I just people you know no one when they, when they criticize Trump, it's like yeah of course I mean who cares, <laughs> of course they're gonna criticize Trump. You know, they, they can feel, oh, we're just being journalists, but everybody knows where they come from politically. All right. Back to the the Post story, though, which has now been the basis for other reporting, too. FBI once planned to pay former British spy who authored controversial Trump dossier. The dossier, as it was. Uh, so this was that report that was published by BuzzFeed and had some salacious details in there you know, there's stuff in there that you're like I, I i even learned i'm just telling you and this is not you know do not let anyone under 18 read the dossier uh but i learned a term that i'd never i didn't even really know what that was the dossier was pretty gross um and there were things in it that were able to be disproven within 24 hours factually inaccurate in the dossier not a question of. Guessing or opinion just not true. So we had that whole revelation that came out. and of course, it was intended to uh, dramatically undermine the Trump administration. But now we're being now they just keep the story going with whatever small advance. they have to keep this alive with whatever small advances they have. And the latest here is that they the Washington Post is saying, that they were trying to give money to the author, Christopher Steele, the former mi6 agent. And people it was so funny they say to me go, like, well you know CIA, okay, you're a lot of bureaucrats in the CIA, but like mi6, they're like James Bond, right? It's like, no, have you seen them have you seen the show The Office? Have you seen the American version? Have you seen the British version? That's like American CIA British mi6, okay? It's all the same stuff. We all wear suits. We, a lot of paperwork, a lot of meetings, uh, not a lot of, not a lot of, uh, you know, karate chops and throwing stars and watches that shoot lasers. That that's not what it is. So I know you know that, but I just think it's funny. People go, "Well, I mean, maybe the CIA is very bureaucratic and lawyered up, but oh, it's MI6. They're all so suave and sophisticated. They just wear tactical black tie all the time because if you're going to be fighting bad guys, you always want your cummerbund and Bow tie to be just perfect. No, it's not. Not how it works. Um, I can tell you that, having having known and worked with some MI6 guys. Uh, no, it's, it's not. It's not like the, It's not like the really cool stuff happens over there. Uh, but so you got this guy Christopher Steele, who is the author of this dossier and has longstanding ties into uh, longstanding relationships both with Russia and covering Russia as an intelligence issue. All that's new here is that the FBI was considering, according to unnamed sources within the FBI, paying this guy some money for his report. What's really worth noting here, of course, is the FBI didn't pay him. So here this is a report on the thought that a dossier that has already been at least partially discredited... At one point, some elements within the FBI thought about possibly giving money for it, but they never ended up actually giving money for it, but we thought you should know that they were maybe going to give money for it. Does that sound like a really worthwhile news story to you? I know the way they run it, it's, oh, the FBI was thinking about paying for this, um, planned to pay. They didn't. They planned to pay. What they're saying is, oh, this, this dossier, just so you know, it's It is credible. I mean, we can't prove that it's credible, but they're trying to suggest to you that it is, in fact, credible without having to corroborate any of it or bring any new information out there. Uh, This is, of course, relying on the public's general lack of knowledge about how, which is understandable unless you've worked in intelligence or in, in law enforcement in a capacity where you would be working with confidential informants. This report says that Steele was not technically a, a CI for the FBI, confidential informant for the FBI. Um, uh, so they're just saying that they were thinking about giving him uh, money for this. Um, that's what the report in the Washington Post here is stating. Um, it is known already that the FBI does pay people for their analysis, for information. FBI often acts as, yes, a a first and foremost, a law enforcement agency, but it has an intelligence collection aspect to it. They have national security investigations. And those of you who have worked on both, I actually worked for a short time in law enforcement, as well as having worked in uh, straight-up intelligence uh, gathering and analysis. And there's a lot of crossover between the two. In fact, you look at the techniques that they use in a show like HBO's The Wire for law enforcement purposes and drug investigations, and having worked on a- a counterterrorism investigations here in the U.S., a lot of the same tactics, a lot of the same approaches. You're running informants. You're using wiretaps. Uh, there's a- asset handling in the field. Uh, you're running, you know, all of that. There's a lot of crossover between the two of them. So the the FBI gives money sometimes for information. Of course, anybody who watches Law and Order or any of those shows is, is pretty familiar with how this goes. Um, but I, I just bring this up because you can see that they want to run a Russia dossier, Russia Trump, the Kremlin owns Trump. All these variations of it. They want to run a story on that pretty much every week in the Washington Post and the New York Times. They want to keep this alive, front and center, as a talking point, and they're hoping that it seeps into the brains of the American people, even those who don't believe or go to that place where they think that somehow this is all going to end up with dramatic revelations about the terrible things, the alleged treason, as we heard from that CNN anchor yesterday, that Donald Trump has committed in favor of the Russians. Even if you don't believe that— it begins to feel more like a story to you just because you see the headlines, you hear it, it's out there, and they need to keep it out there. Yeah, some interesting uh, research and analysis has been done in the past of the New York Times and how many front page stories it ran on Abu Ghraib. I think it was. I'm. I'm not. I'm going from memory here, so I believe, but I need to check my facts on this. It was. I think they ran 37 front page stories on Abu Ghraib. Now, Abu Ghraib was a news story and certainly and it should be it was something that the American people should have known about. We did 37 front page story. Were there really that many developments in it that it was the third or was it important to keep that story front and center as a club with which to bludgeon the Bush administration for its war in Iraq, a war that many Democrats in America were saying was illegal and that Bush was guilty of war crimes As you may recall, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, unlike what we saw during the Obama administration, where any scandal was met with what scandal, uh, Rumsfeld offered his resignation to Bush after Abu Ghraib, and Bush did not take it. But at least Rumsfeld was willing to say, I'm Secretary of Defense. I'm accountable. I didn't order this, but it happened under my watch. Here's my resignation. Bush didn't take it. That seems to have faded, at least for the last eight years, that notion of, Something bad happens on my watch, whether it's Fast and Furious with Eric Holder, Hillary Clinton with Benghazi. No resignations offered, just excuses and counter accusations that this is all political. And the other side is making a big deal out of nothing. But here you have a very weak advance in the story of Russia and Trump and what they're and, and this connection that they say exists. I am still waiting for one real story, one Piece of real evidence that they can point to and say, see, we told you there's something nefarious going on between, or there was something nefarious occurring with Trump and the Russians. I have yet to see, there's not one thing, nothing. Think of how many stories you've heard about this, how many front-page stories, how many news broadcasts have addressed this issue. Now you've got congressional investigations going on. You've got Republicans who are grandstanding along with Democrats about how we need to get to the bottom of this. Okay, let's get to the bottom of of this, but what do we think we're going to get to the bottom of exactly? There is still not one shred... In a world where the, you know, the wrong email can send you to prison, there's not one piece of real evidence they can point to they can show that they have to support this claim meanwhile it is the media's favorite news story and you know next week they're going to run a story about how a guy in the FBI talked to another guy in the FBI about how they they were thinking they need to talk more about the Russia-Trump connection front page, big headline and you're going to read that and say well that's is that even a story? What? oh no but it's Trump-Russia so it's we just 15. need to talk about it just got to keep it out there Uh, frustrating, my friends. Very frustrating indeed, but we'll take the uh, nonsense to task here. Got much more? Stay with me. Buck
0: Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. right, Buck, you're on.
2: Let's talk about Trump's revised executive order on immigration, a.k.a. or known to some as the travel ban and known to some others as the Muslim ban, although that is not accurate, but that is what people call it. Uh, To talk to us about the legalities of this and what we can expect the courts to do in response, we've got Ilya Shapiro on the line. He is Cato Institute's senior fellow in constitutional studies and editor in chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Ilya, great to have you.
3: Good to be on. We're still waiting for this revised order, so we're, I'm, I'm just going to be talking about hypothetical.
2: Yeah, I know. I was going to say, you, you got the inside track of when this is going to actually get signed and done? I mean, what are, we, what are we hearing about that?
3: Well, originally it was supposed to be last week. Uh, then it was pushed to today. And then after the uh, uh, the uh, the successful non state of the union uh, joint address uh, last night. They wanted to the administration wanted to bask in the glow of that, not create waves. I suppose so. Now I, it's supposed to be tomorrow, but 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 who knows?
2: And the expectation is that okay. I, I, let me ask it this way, Ilya. If the administration brought you in. To craft and irrespective, by the way, and I don't know how you feel about it, but that doesn't matter for our purposes right now of of whether it's a good idea or not. If they just said, all right, you're our legal counsel, we need to make sure that this will withstand even Ninth Circuit level crazy scrutiny, meaning that, you know, progressives will come at this with an ideological hatchet and try to find a way to tear it apart. What would need to change so that this thing doesn't suffer the same fate as the last one?
3: Well, at this point, I don't think anything can satisfy the Ninth Circuit because hell has been poisoned, uh, and we are not going to uh, defer to the president on, on any of this. Uh, their next move, their, their first opinion uh, was all based on uh, on on due process and didn't even talk about the law. Uh, the next one is probably going to deal with uh, uh, the Establishment Clause and how this is discrimination based on religion, and that's what's fueling it all. Uh, I, I don't think that's you know the, the Ninth Circuit is a lost cause on on that how other courts would do and ultimately the Supreme Court if it comes to it uh, is is really the the, the bigger question and uh, the whole thing about this legally speaking is that uh, the the administration did itself no favors in rolling out the original one as it did without the. Interagency coordination without briefing the line border officers who are supposed to implement it, uh, without getting a, a full uh, a legal evaluation, wh- whether bringing in me or, or anyone else, um, it, it was just it was just botched. Uh, right. So there,
2: there and, were clearly know, that, that, process issues within the bureaucracy, but in terms of the the legality of the text yeah, of the if, law, yeah,
3: if, if, it, if it yeah, if it had been more narrowly tailored, which would have come from more process. Uh, so to make explicit that it doesn't cover green card holders and certain other people that have statutory rights uh, making clearer exactly what's what's going on so it can't be so easily labeled as a as a muslim ban or a refugee ban or, or, or anything like this uh, maybe rolled out in a series of smaller executive orders uh, one about pausing refugees while the criteria are changed one about uh, more severe vetting of, of visas from certain countries one about um, you, you name it, different parts of it that really, uh, again, uh, we're talking about the law, not about uh, the policy wisdom, and I, and I do have some disagreements there, but just about the law, those should not be legally problematic because the president, the executive branch, uh, the law that Congress passed, has broad discretion to make determinations uh, on uh, whom to temporarily uh, stop entry on for, for national security concerns and, uh, and how to run the refugee program. Uh, and things like that. I imagine that this revised order will now be what I just discussed. Uh, you know, really crafting it uh, uh, with more precise language, making sure that everyone knows what's going on, and we don't just have a mad rush to the airports and all these cases being filed and, and things like that. But the problem is the genie's already out of the bottle. We've already had that first experience, and so as I said, uh, we're we're dealing in a poisoned legal atmosphere, and so courts wouldn't will not be acting as they would have had it been. Uh, this way. The and you've you
2: already had a federal judge in Virginia, uh, Judge Brinkema, and this got much less attention because it came after the ninth. The Ninth Circuit panel uh, kept the stay on the quote ban, but you had Brinkema, as I understand it. and well, I, I read I read some of her her opinion on this, uh, saying that this is just bigotry, plain and simple. So I mean, that's that's a that's going to be very tough to get around.
3: I, I think so. I think so. It's, it's, it's a thorny question that courts really haven't faced because. Uh, it can't be the case that uh, something that the president does in office is rendered illegal or struck down because of the certain atmosphere created or things said during the campaign, for example, Uh, because who knows what kind of legal advice you get in the interim or or how uh, campaign speech gets translated uh, into policy. So I think it's a dangerous thing to say that uh, because of all the Uh, what some would interpret as uh, bigotry uh, during the campaign or uh, surrogates going on TV to talk that way. Because of that, uh, this administration cannot act in these ways Whatever, or is there like a two-year statute of limitations, or, or or what? You know, what if the real national security determination is such? Why why shouldn't the president be able to, to act in that way? It's a
2: real pickle. It seems to me like, based on the again, the Ninth Circuit is is kind of easy to pick on here for people that believe the law is more than just what people want it to be. But if, under the Ninth Circuit's reasoning, as expressed in their maintaining the stay on the ban. And again, it's the three it's not on bunk and we've gone over this in the show with with, the, with folks a bunch, but those three judges out west uh, that they could overrule because they, they've gone so far into the president's prerogative here that under the same re- reasoning they could say, well you can't uh, you can't engage in these counterterrorism operations. you know we're, we want to overrule your drone strikes in uh, the Fatah in Pakistan because we think that's anti-muslim. I don't see how it's that different than yeah. the reasoning. I mean, the, the Israeli Oh, oh and Supreme also, by the way, it's not effective. It's a tactic, not a strategy. We think it's ineffective. They could do that.
3: Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's something that the Israeli Supreme Court has actually done. They, they might go manage war to a, to a small extent. Uh, so I, I think there are real dangers of that, yeah.
2: What are some of the biggest constitutional issues that are real right now, either when it comes to the bureaucracy not functioning the way it's supposed to because they're so opposed to Trump or because of Trump Trumpy and overreach. I mean, you are you are the editor in chief of the Cato Supreme Court review. Uh, you're hearing a lot of very dramatic rhetoric from people these days about the First Amendment. What what does concern you?
3: Um, well, there are things that concern me politically. I think there's certain things that Trump's done or said uh, that that is not helpful. Political discourse. That's one thing. But you asked me about. yeah, the I'm asking just for the, for the political law political. stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, a lot is actually – a lot of problems are going away because a lot of these regulations that uh, I would argue the executive branch didn't have uh, authority to uh, to promulgate or or, or or orders that the president gave that, that were uh, illegal are, are being rescinded and, and revoked. And so whether it's the waters of the U.S. rule that's being reconsidered now most recently uh, or certain other things that are – Can I ask uh, you
2: specifically about that one, uh, uh, Ilya? How bad is it? Because I've I've read a lot about you know you you hear some people say oh do you want your kids to have dirty drinking water and the environmentalists left that's their approach. Then you read these other stories about ranchers who are going to get fined seventy five thousand dollars a day for a pond that they dug in in their backfield. Uh, how how bad is the Clean Waters or the Waters of the U S. regulation that Trump is rolling back?
3: It's uh, this, this has nothing to do with uh, how pure your water can be or how much. Toxins uh, someone can discharge into it. This is a, a naked power grab by the federal government over private and state lands uh, to take over jurisdiction um, over. Uh, yeah, no, not just ponds, but puddles uh, places that get wet when there's a rainstorm uh, because they might run off into something that might run off that might run off that might run off eventually into uh, you know, the, the Mississippi or something that goes into a, uh, an interstate uh, or, or ocean. Um, have you come
2: across you some cases go. i mean you're at cato have you come across some cases like what are some of the craziest things that under this regulation the federal government has done
3: it's such a young regulation and, and it's been uh in the courts as soon as it was passed uh i'm not sure uh, what specifically uh has been has been fought uh, against it rather than the, the the status quo ante because the the epa as it is the the example of the the, the rancher with the $75,000 a day fine was a Supreme court case three, four years ago. That was before the waters of the U S rule. Oh, so it's only Out gotten through. worse. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and some of these things are purely procedural protections in that case, uh, the government was arguing that these, uh, ranchers don't even get their day in court. They should just go ahead and, and start building. And if uh, we want to find them at that point that, that, that they can, uh, bring us to court. So it's, um, just, just um, the you, you know, you asked me what what constitutional issues yeah. are happening. For for now, there's just a, a lot of rolling back of what I see as problematic things. Whether in in, uh, in Dodd Frank and Sarbanes Oxley, the financial area, one of Trump's executive orders was uh, to, to start reconsidering uh, some of that stuff, and, and there are a whole lot of problems there with. Uh, independent agencies being uh, judge, jury, policeman, executioner, and all other aspects of a, of a law enforcement regime. So like the cancer.
2: Consumer prote- Consumer Financial yeah. Protection Bureau, what, what can they do to you? Uh,
3: they can find small businesses uh, up the wazoo for all sorts of things that seem uh, innocuous. Um, and in fact, th- there's active litigation about uh, whether their structure is constitutional, the D.C. Circuit, which is the nuclear D.C. Circuit that that, that Harry Reid um, uh, managed to fill, and so now there's an overwhelming uh, uh, majority of Obama and Clinton appointees on it. Um, it has vacated a, a, a panel uh, ruling that, that held unconstitutional the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, but that was vacated. Now that's going on, bonk and probably will will preserve it. But I think I think Trump should fire Richard Cordray, the director, um, uh, uh, right away, and let them litigate over that.
2: There we go. We got a constitutional expert saying Trump needs to say you're fired. All right. <laughs> That's a good place for us to to leave it now. Ilya Shapiro is Cato Institute Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies, Editor-in-Chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Ilya, great to have you. Thanks for calling in. Have a good night. Good to be on. Uh, team, I just wanted to bring something to your attention, a couple of things to your attention, if I may. Uh, first off, if you have not already and you're listening to the show, please do... Go on the iHeartRadio app or go on iTunes, and on iTunes you type Buck Sexton into the search field and you can subscribe to the podcast. It's a great way to catch up on a show that you've missed, hear the rest of the show, or if you feel like you want to tell your friends about this uh, new fun radio show you've stumbled onto, if you're new to the Freedom Hut, you can share that podcast very easily. Share the link, email, Facebook, however you want to share it. Uh, so please do that. I uh, really appreciate it. And it's, it's very encouraging to see those numbers just jumping up each day we do the show. Uh, also, if you're not already following me on Facebook, go to facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. We post stories there throughout the day, updates on the show. I try to get back, go back and forth with people on comments, questions. Uh, they make fun of my hair. I try to give them a fair and honest response to whether I agree with their criticism. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Uh, and with that in mind oh, I've got a poll to tell you about. But the music's coming on, which means i got to go into the break. But when you come back, I'll tell you about a poll that uh, Team Buck has has spoken, and we've got the answers. It has to do with red meat. You're going to want to hear it. We'll be right back. So uh, I mentioned to you that we had a poll up on Facebook. So anyone from Team Buck who wanted to way in they can just go to facebook.com slash buck sexton and i try to check in on social media by the way during the show as well so you can send me your comments and thoughts there also on twitter at buck sexton and you've noticed a trend lots of buck sexton in different social media platforms so uh i asked you i know this is the last time i'm gonna bring up steak i promise because we've we've really talked about the steak thing a lot i get that but we ran a poll and i just thought it was pretty funny to see where people come down on this how do you like your steak uh, and medium medium rare, burnt to a crisp, medium well. We had thirty one percent of respondents said medium, which I think is totally respectable. You go medium, especially if you're not sure of the quality of the steak and you worry that the uh the restaurant or whomever's cooking it will will undercook it. Medium is you're you're pretty safe. It's still gonna taste good. It medium is, is a good look, it's the it's the midway option, right? It's it's like I don't know. It's like getting your Corolla in gray or, or a beige or something. I mean, it's not, you know, it's fine. Um, so then you have rare, medium, rare at 49%. There we go, people. There we go. That's the sweet spot. That's the good stuff right there. Rare, medium, rare. I think that's the way to go. Depending on the cut of meat and who's cooking it, that's the way to do it. Black and blue, 1%, but uh, medium well to well done. We got to have a talk, folks. Almost well, fifteen percent of you. I thought it was twenty percent. I was looking at something else. Fifteen percent of you thought that that's the way to to get your your steak ordered, or I suppose any of your red meats. Uh, a little side note, by the way, whenever somebody asks you uh, how you like a a fish cooked, fish should just be cooked, and it should be cooked properly so that it's sort of still moist in the middle. Uh, it is, as far as I understand, it is really only tuna that you should have a temperature request for salmon should be cooked through, not overcooked, but cooked through. And when, with other fish people say, Oh, you know, how do you want your soul? Um, if it's still gelatinous and uncooked in the middle, you're eating some raw fish. So you don't want that. So, um, a little, little side note there. Also one day we we'll, we'll, maybe we'll have on, we've had in the past on the show, um, we've had on a, a bacon and bourbon expert. I feel like that could be a fun thing to do on a Friday. We'll get somebody on here who is going to talk about uh, the best. The, well, first of all, the best kind of bacon you can get, uh, the ways to cook your bacon. Although this guy originally said, "I don't want you to do it in a microwave." And look, I don't have all the time in the world to make breakfast myself in the morning, so I'm a microwave guy. I have bacon and eggs every day. That is what I have for breakfast every day. I just stay. I stay with the hits. You know, I'm like a greatest hits album, and I've only got two. I've only got two songs. The first one is bacon. The second one is eggs. That's what I eat every day. That and coffee is pretty much what keeps the Freedom Hut rolling here. Um, So, uh, And then bourbon. Maybe we'll have a tequila expert on at some point, too. That'd be kind of fun. On Fridays is when we tend to do, especially in the third hour of the show on Friday, we tend to think of that as freestyle, which means it's going to be wide open. And any thoughts or suggestions you have for guests that are just experts that are interesting to hear talking about something because – by the time we get to the the third hour on a Friday show, usually you've you've heard a lot of. New, I'll make sure you're all up to date with the first hour, maybe in, in, into the second hour as well, with everything happening in this country and all over the world. We've already done our national security deep dives. We've done our political analysis. So it's kind of fun to uh, mix it up and and get something else in there. I think this this we have a space person this Friday, right? Had somebody's going to talk to us about living in outer space, what that, what that's like. So something to look forward to. See, we do things here in the Freedom Hut that they just don't do on other shows because we're always expanding our minds and our knowledge here, expanding our minds. Sounds like I'm taking psychedelic drugs. But no, I mean that, really. We're expanding our, our knowledge base. And, and I one of the things I love so much about this job of doing radio is that it gives me a constant excuse to teach myself more and to learn more. And hopefully in the process, I allow a lot of other people to learn some of that stuff too because when we bring on these experts, including, we had that uh, geneticist from Harvard who was working on some really cool projects telling us about how we're going to have a Something very similar to a woolly mammoth brought back to life pretty soon. I mean, we've got crazy stuff going on in the world, so we'll have people on that. I also have some plans for some uh, experts in an infectious disease and what's happening on that front. Robotics experts. So, I don't you think it's just politics, national security, and current events and the culture wars here. We take care of all angles in the Freedom Hut. Um, and, uh, oh, please do, uh, like I said, download the podcast. We're also on Stitcher and... Uh, obviously, the iHeartRadio app. Uh, you can listen to us there live. And you can go to AmericanNowRadio.com as well to listen live. So that is what we've got for you on today's show. Uh, do share the podcast with a friend or two. Write a review, if you would, please. That really helps us out, too. And until tomorrow, my friends, I am blessed and humbled to have spent this time with you. See you tomorrow. Shield high.